Welcome to American History Untucked. I'm your host, David Zilkenberg. My guest for this show is David Trowbridge, who teaches at Marshall University in West Virginia. He is the creator of the cell phone app Clio, uh, which is an open access web project, a cell phone app project that allows users to use GPS technology to connect with the past as they're walking around in the present. In some ways, it's a little bit like a TripAdvisor, allowing you to upload information about the past and allows you to use other users' information about historic sites uh, around the United States and connect with places you wouldn't be able to find otherwise. He's also the author of A History of the United States, which is an innovative uh, textbook produced by Flat World Knowledge, one that allows um, a kind of customization uh, that most textbooks don't allow. And we spend some time talking about uh, the textbook market in the state state of uh, U.S. history textbooks today. Uh, but before we have my conversation with David, I want to apologize for the quality of the audio in our last episode. Um, for those of you who listened to the last episode, uh, my conversation with Ann, uh, Sarah Rubin, uh, so there were parts of the conversation where the audio wasn't very good at all, and I don't know whether that was a problem with her computer or my computer or Skype or something else. If I were to wager, I'd say the problem was uh, <laughs> with me. Um, but regardless, I'd like to apologize to those of you who listened to the episode and to Anne for the uh, quality of the audio in that episode. And I think, at least I hope, I've gotten all the technological uh, issues resolved so that uh, we don't have problems like that in the future. Here's my conversation with David. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on your Royals last night. Yes. Uh, it has been 29 years. I was in first grade when we won the World Series, and I remember thinking it was it was always going to be like this. Was that, was that 1985? 1985, yes. Yeah, with, with George Brett and Dan Quisenberry and all those guys. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't sleep that <laughs> night. And last night was the same way. The game, of course, I couldn't sleep because the game went into extra innings <laughs> at about 1.30 uh, here Eastern time. But it didn't matter. I, I, I laid in bed and I, I kept waking up and, and checking my phone uh, just to see the score of the game I had just watched. <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure that wasn't a dream. That, that... Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, they've had... They've... You know, had a long run where they uh, had, had some rough seasons. So congratulations. Hopefully that'll thank, thank you. I think it's out. important, always important to have one team that you that you care deeply about, where your your gratitude always exceeds your expectations. <laughs> My father grew up being a being a Royals fan, or I guess a Kansas City A's fan originally, and uh, right. he, he had some rough years there for a while. <laughs> so you just had this new app that that came out on. Uh, I guess on the App Store on on, on iTunes, uh, Clio. What? Where did the idea for this come from? Well, the uh, the long answer the uh, the long answer goes about ten years back when I was uh, teaching at the University of Kansas. I got to teach a class on Kansas history, and I really wanted students. This, was, of course, was in Lawrence, and I, I wanted students to experience history um, really through the soles of their feet. And, and they pardoned the, the, the kind of the puns that I made, and they, they would go to the places. I would lecture about the history, and then I would have 
certain numbers of students would, would pick what place they wanted to go visit. And then I wanted to tell them about, wanted, wanted them to report back about what they, what they felt when they were at those places. And knowing something about uh, my students, I asked that they take a picture of themselves at the place. So I know that they actually went there. Well, one of the most compelling places uh, was the, the site of a lynching. Uh, students Jeez. were sort of amazed that there was a lynching in Lawrence, Kansas. And I think I had six students out of a classroom of 60 pick that place. And all six of them wrote uh, this, this amazing piece about how going to that place and knowing what happened there uh, had, had, such, uh, had moved them so deeply. But of the six pictures, there were three different locations. And the students, they, they were in the wrong place. Huh. And <laughs> so they were moved by the wrong location. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They were, they were, they, they felt this feeling and it was genuine, but they weren't in the right place. And I, I, I didn't have the heart to tell them, <laughs> but I remember thinking I, I need to give, and, and I kept trying this over and over again. And, and, and students ability to follow a map has, has declined since that time. And so a, a few years ago, I built a very simple, um, interface with, with, with Google maps and I would put pins on the map, and, and that way students could go, they could be guided right to the place. They could see it on a map. They could, and it worked beautifully. The students loved it, and they wanted to put places from their own towns on there. And I, I let them do that. And so here it was growing, um, this simple class assignment. And then uh, something terrible and wonderful happened. We lost uh, two different, uh, our server at Marshall University crashed and the backup server crashed. Jeez, that's awful. Actually, I, I think we didn't back everything up. I think that's... That was a lie. There was only one server. And right, right. Server. Yeah, okay. So we lost everything. And I, I remember having to go talk to them about it. I said, I'm, I'm so sorry, everyone. And, and they weren't having it. They were not, they were not okay with it's over. Mm. And they pushed me... To, to build again and and well if you study urban history sometimes when there's a, a tragedy you get the chance to to rebuild and start over and do it right with lessons that you learned and so that's what we did um, we hired professional coders um, I, I paid a, a, a pricely a princely sum out of my own pocket to get this going um, but it's been so exciting to see it grow uh, we're up to, I think, thir over 3,600 sites. We've got over 100 contributors. Um, and the, there's about 200 improvements to entries each month. People are adding links to primary sources, links to secondary sources, books and articles. Sometimes the books and articles they wrote, which is perfect. Mm -hmm. um, I want this to, to be generous. And I want it to, to help the people that are, that are helping to build this thing. Huh. And so, so who are these contributors that are helping to build this? A lot of them are local historians. Um, some of them are my students, uh, undergraduate and graduate, that are uh, deeply moved by history. Uh, others are historians that they want to promote their book. <laughs> and so if there is a place on the map related to the history of, their, of, of your book, you can uh, create that entry, but then there's a place for links for when people want to know more. And that's the place for good articles and good books. And so if you go to Harper's Ferry, for example, and you, the Clio gives you turn-by-turn -turn directions. It gives you information, links for more information. It also suggests books if you're interested in learning more. 
and so authors or anyone uh, can uh, put a thumbnail of the book and a link to it and you click on it and it's right in your your card at Amazon or Pals Books or whichever uh, whichever the person wants to use. And so this is open in sort of the way that I guess Wikipedia is open, right? It, it is in the sense that we depend, you know, with Wikipedia, if they had a hundred million dollars, they couldn't pay people um, salaries to build the content that's on there. And it's the same thing with Clio. I, I couldn't have enough money to pay people to add entries um, the way it needs to grow. Mm-hmm. So the mut- the interest is, of course, promoting, sharing the knowledge that you that you care about, and promoting places and promoting your own scholarship. Yeah. Um, but we do vet entries on the front end instead of the back end. Uh, it's something we've added, and there are some entries that need some help. Mm-hmm. But we we basically we 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 put in the technology where anyone can use Clio without logging in. Mm-hmm. But if you want to add or improve entries, you need to create an account. Of course, everything's free, but that helps us track things, and and uh, it's not anonymous like Wikipedia is. Mm-hmm. So once you create, once you once you for the first time create an account and create a new entry or suggest an improvement to an entry, that goes into a queue um, where one of we have seven administrators can see it and will approve it or reject it. the The best part is when it's in that queue, we can see it, the contributor can see it, but no one else can. Hmm. So that protects um, from the vandalism that Wikipedia sometimes has. Sure. Uh, so the idea is to sort of vet things on the front end instead of on the back. And, and Wikipedia can now, I think, fairly effectively, you know, they'll, they'll be, uh, you know, they'll put t- Tim Howard as the, the Secretary of Defense, yeah. but an hour later, it's, it's, it's back. Yeah. But we, we want to we vet things on the front end. <laughs> well, you know, and Wikipedia got better the bigger it scaled up, you know, once, Absolutely. you know. And obviously, certain entries are are better than others. Right. Um, if you had problem, I can imagine a problem though, where one site has two, you know, very different contested meanings, yes, and, and different contributors, you know, fighting with each other over over how exactly you're going to describe some of these places. Uh, right. Has that occurred at all yet, or is that some, something that's probably still on the horizon? I think that that'll be a sign of success. <laughs> Uh, when when people care enough and are using it in large enough numbers that they would actually be willing to fight over uh, an entry in Clio, um, we're still in the uh, the toddler stage, I would say, uh, in terms of content. With 3,600 entries, I mean, it sounds impressive, but um, you know, there needs to be between 50 and 100,000. Um, now we've got one of the cool things, and this is true of Wikipedia as well, is you can track the history. Mm-hmm. And this was really important to me. So we spent some time on the coding for this. So you can actually not only see the different uh, versions, but you can put them side by side. So if there's been four revisions, you'll see that at the bottom. And you can click on that number four. And then you can see and compare each one to each other. And I think that makes it a little bit... With Wikipedia, you can you can, you can can track the changes over time, but it's it's very hard for people to decipher uh, what, those, what all that means, yeah. Right, right. And, and this is plain text put side by side by side with the person's name and the time uh, that they changed it. And so it's it's 
Hmm. It's really easy to see that. Um, and so when we get to the point when there's contested narratives, uh, that's when I think it'll be really cool because yeah. you'll be able to you'll be able to see those um, uh, those those arguments played out uh, in in an open environment. Yeah, well, when I was looking at at the app and playing with it uh, over the past couple of days, it was reminding me of uh, Ari Kelman's book on the Sand Creek Massacre. Yes, you know, and there's a question in that book first off, you know, should we call it, is it appropriate to call this a massacre? So what do you tag the site as? And right. the second question is where exactly is the site? And there's different sort of you know, competing arguments uh, made about sort of, is it 100 yards this way? Is it a quarter mile over here? Right. Um, and, you know, the lots of places where, you know, that isn't, you know, it's obvious where something happened, what the landmark is and why you should, why it's important. But, uh, uh, you know, there are other places, in some ways the most important places, uh, you know, ones where some of those questions are still open. Right. Uh, and. And I think once we expand, uh, hopefully, to become a, a global uh, app, um, we'll really see that. And, mm-hmm. and that might even get to the point where we we have some, some real problems. So I can see North Korea. <laughs> um, you know, that, I, I'm not, um, if we get to the point where we expand to that, uh, that global level, we'll have to have uh, some funding and yeah. some staff to take care of those sorts of things. And national security clearance, probably. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, I noticed just looking around, there, there are lots of places where, where the coverage is, is very robust, you know, where you can every, you know, couple hundred yards is a news site. I, I noticed New York City was very well covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, you know, parts of West Virginia were very well covered. Yes, absolutely. Um, West Virginia is incredibly historical uh, <laughs> when you look at Clio. And, um, you know, you can actually kind of, if, if you if you take the time to look through Clio right now, you can you can kind of, and, and if you know anything about digital humanities, you can sort of predict who's really into this. Mm-hmm. Um, you can by looking at the cities and looking at the topics that <laughs> that are covered. Yeah, okay, this is uh, who's getting involved. And yeah. so I'm assuming since this is all open, that that if if other people are doing digital history classes or doing public history or doing urban history or any kind of you know, landscape, environmental history. All of them would be game for, for using this for a class assignment, and absolutely, and that's really the goal. That's part of the. Um, I've used this with students. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about how much we love teaching, but we don't usually like grading. Uh, <laughs> I love grading now, and, and I don't expect people to believe me, yeah. but when you can you can go into Clio. We've actually made it to where uh, anyone who wants to use this in a classroom, we can set them up with a, a special administrative account. They can um, that way the students don't have to tell them I did this entry. They can see they can see the list of their students and they can see what they've done. So it's very easy to go in and see what they've done and see the changes they've made. You will learn you know, on a stormy Monday night of, of doing grading. You will learn so much from your students because there will be so many um, entries mm-hmm. related to topics and places you'll you'll never be able to go to. Um, I mean, grading now is is a joy. The students come to my office hours not with excuses, but because they can't wait to tell me about. Oh, I went to this. I went to my my hometown and I found this museum. Um, Tuesday, I had a student, you know 
bursting into my office as soon as, as office hours began. She had uh, gone to her small town, and she didn't realize that there had ever been a, a, a black high school there. Um, but she found someone who was alumni of that place. After they talked for a little bit, she said, you know, Haley, this, would you like to go uh, for a walk with me? And they went on a walk together, and she showed exactly where the school had been uh, and other sites. And, um, you know, this wasn't a history major. This was someone uh, who was just a good student and who got to experience the joy that we usually get to experience in our, our third or fourth year of grad school when we finally get out there mm-hmm. and get to, uh, get to go to archives and get to, get to talk with people like that. Well, I, mean, I guess the great thing about using this with students is that, uh, or one of the great things, I guess there's more than one, but uh, that they see their work is actually having a purpose beyond simply checking a box and getting a grade, right? That their work is actually going to benefit somebody and be out there in the world and, and not just, uh, you know, it's not just the essay they write for their professor and turn in and one person reads it and marks it and hands it back, Uh Absolutely. They, they do a lot better work when they, they know that it's not just going to end up in a professor's waste basket. Um, I, I explain, you know, that, that those things have value. I mean, it's, it, those things are exercises. Mm-hmm. You know, the students, they, they go to the gym and they, they, I, I tell them, you pick up these heavy things, you put them back down, you run on a treadmill, you're in the same place. You see value in that, but you don't see value in writing an essay paper if it doesn't if it doesn't lead to something, I said, but those are both exercises. This one makes your brain stronger. This, we have that on a, on a larger scale. It's a rigorous assignment. You, you've got to go out and find new information and then they get to show it to their parents, to their family members, and they get to put this on their resume, which mm-hmm. is huge. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've part of the American historical association's tuning project. Mm-hmm. Jim Grossman actually came to Huntington, West Virginia. We met with a bunch of local employers, and they said that our students have nothing on their resume. They've graduated, but they have nothing on their resume, and they 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 can't when when they answer the when they ask the the standard questions of "Tell me about a time you were challenged." They always talk about time when they were working at some part-time job. Well. This could be a time when you were challenged. challenged. I was yeah. trying to, I was trying to document something that no one had ever documented, or find the the backstory behind this Confederate monument in West Virginia or Ohio, and I had to go to this archive. I had to go to this source. Uh, we we talked to employers, and they said if students could talk to us like that, um, mm-hmm. we would we would absolutely hire. Them. I, I told about one student that did an oral history project. The um, the employer stopped me and said, "No, wait a minute, your your student." They made phone calls. <laughs> who, who is this person, and, and, and would they like a job? And then, then they thought about it more, and they said, "No, wait a minute. They 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 actually created a list of their own prospects, made cold calls, set up appointments, sold people on meeting with them, showed up on time with equipment, and made them so comfortable that they would tell a story that was so personal, and and trusted the student with that information, and trusted them to record it. You know, I've never thought about that as a yeah." As an employable skill, yeah. But 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 wow, yeah. when you think about it that way. So I think that that this assignment, if if people want to incorporate this in their class, um, I, I can attest that students that 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 might not do the best work generally will put forth their best effort. Yeah. Well, I know there are lots of people who are doing similar kinds of things, but on a much smaller scale, where they're you're know, looking at you know, the local geography of their 
city or where the university is. And, and I think a lot of those things could be well integrated into this project. And Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. That's, I, I don't see Clio as, as a competitor for any of those because if you're in one of those cities, if you're in Cleveland, for example, Cleveland was one of the first to, to have one of these big, big local apps, and it's wonderful. If you're in Cleveland, you shouldn't be using Clio. Mm. You should be using Cleveland Historical. But you would never find that unless you lived there or you knew somebody. But so, so the developer of that app and those websites and, and, and hundreds of local history websites around the country can create entries in Clio and include links to their websites. Um, look, we're, we're, Clio's free. Yeah. We're not monetizing traffic. We're not even tracking traffic. If someone uses Clio for three hours, we've, we've kind of failed. But mm -hmm. if they use Clio and they discover blackpass.org mm -hmm. or some other great website, that's a win. Yeah, if they use it like TripAdvisor. Yeah, if it, if it gets them to go to places, either yeah. virtual or physical places. If it gets them off the couch and gets them to go see historical monuments, that's a win. If it, if it gets them to click on the links, that's a win. Mm -hmm. If they click on a link and buy a book, that's a win. Yeah. We're not accepting advertisements because if they get distracted and they buy a pair of pants, that's not a win. And so you're hoping at some point to take this global? Uh, eventually. I mean, that's, that's, we've, got to get, we've got to grow a lot more content in the next couple of years for the United States. Okay. Um, and then eventually, absolutely, I would love it to be global. Like I said, we would just need the infrastructure mm -hmm. for um, web hosting sure. and vetting. And and probably languages, that would be yeah that would be the other big challenge. Um, I, I think some of that can be done fairly automated. Uh, one of the other things I really want to do um, is to have Clio to the point where there's so much content and we've tied um, with existing databases that users can just hold their phone up to a historical site or a work of uh, public art. That was the other, the other the other direction we're going is to include sculptures and art galleries. And it can just tell you what it is without pressing a button. Mm -hmm. Well, I talked to my wife about this, and she thought it was an awful idea because uh, right now, whenever we go anyplace, I'm always reading all these little plaques that are on the sides of buildings, and mm -hmm. you know, Alexander Graham Bell was born here, kinds of things, and slowing her down from whatever it is that we're <laughs> actually supposed to be doing. And she's like, "If you get this, this is going to kill you, and we're never going to go anywhere." Uh, that's true. That's true. Or, or I'm going to drag her down. Let's go down this little alley where this little riot yeah. happened 150 years ago. And she's like, I don't care about the riot happened 150 years ago. I care about <laughs> making it to dinner. Um, but, well, hopefully, uh, hopefully there's some entries that they <laughs> care about as well. I, uh, my wife kind of thought the same thing. We were on a trip and uh, we were coming back and uh, her cell phone's dead. So she was, she's using mine. This is about a year ago. It had a, a early beta version of Clio. And she saw that uh, there was a children's museum in Indianapolis. And it's a wonderful museum because she said we should stop. And we did. We have, we have, we have two, uh, two wonderful daughters. And we had a great time. And at that point, she said, you know what? This, this thing you're building, this is, this is pretty cool. <laughs> this is okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, she, and, and once, once she used it for something that she cared about, she started looking at the monuments and everything else and wanted to – wanted to spend, she said, we, we need to come back to Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, and, and it makes, you know, traveling 
you know, because you drive by, you know, especially if you're doing highway travel in the United States, you know, everybody stops at McDonald's because they don't know where else to stop. But now we have this information at our fingertips and we know, oh, if you just go two miles off the road, there's a good restaurant. And now you can know there's a good restaurant and there's a, you know, nice museum and a monument that's worth seeing all, you know, right. just off the highway. And And even if you don't stop. Even if you don't click on the links, just you know it's there. You get a, a stronger sense of place. Yeah. Um, because it's free, I would love it if GPS providers would 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 tap into this content. Um, you're driving in your car. You you put in the place you want to go. You you really just want to know turn left or turn right. Um, but after that, there's this time where it could talk to you. Mm-hmm. If it would just tell you things like you're heading west on I-64, I you're crossing the Ohio River. You, you might have a stronger sense of, of place. But it could also say things like, in, in 10 miles is this museum. Would you like to know more? Yeah. And you could say, no, no, I, let's go back to my music. I, you know, <laughs> or, yes, I would like to know more. Well, it's all going to be in our, you know, our glasses next week, probably. <laughs> The chip implanted in our brain will tell yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of spooky. Um, <laughs> and I think you know those those tech companies are they're building similar things, but their their intent is not to share history. Their intent is to track us and <laughs> sell us products. products. To be sure. Yeah. So this wasn't your first sort of foray into digital history. The the textbook that you wrote, I guess the the first volume or the second volume came out a couple of years ago. Yes, a history of the United States, and it's partially, uh, you know, a digital product, but partially also you can get it in a print version. Sure, but it's very different than most U.S. history textbooks. And I wonder if you could just sort of articulate what made you want to write a textbook in the first place. Mm-hmm. It was one of those things I never thought I would, I would even be asked to do. Um, I. When when the Journal of American History asked for me to, to contribute to this article uh, or this interchange about teaching in textbooks, it was with Eric Foner and Randall Miller. Yeah, I, I don't belong in that group. <laughs> so the invitation came, and it was it was intriguing because I had been thinking about and, and dissatisfied with textbooks, and I think all of us are. Um, and I loved the model that Flat World was originally using, which was the book was free online and it was available for a very low cost as um, a print, traditional print textbook. And then students could buy a Kindle or a Nook version for, for, for a small price. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that would take care of so many things. For one, I mean, just the, I think, abusive pricing uh, of, of textbooks. Yeah. Um, my students won't buy a book for $180 and no. I don't, I, I don't think that's, that's fair to ask them to do because I, I'm in my home right now. I'm looking at my, my library. It's probably the thing I've next to my home. It's, it's what I spent the most money on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's not a book that, that, that costs more than, more than $60 on my shelf. So I love the free model. I love the idea. If students, if they're if they're waiting on financial aid, they can read the free online version until the book shows up. I loved all of it. Yeah. Um, the other big attraction to me was the ability for faculty members to create derivative versions. And here's why I think this matters. Um, you know, in, in some fields it might not matter. In chemistry, it might not matter. 
but in American history, I've taught in four different states, and every time I teach, I try to incorporate local history into the narrative. So when I'm in Kansas and I'm talking about the Civil War, I'm going to talk more about bleeding Kansas than I normally would. And when I was in Baltimore, I, I, I adjusted to the Civil Rights Movement. It was mm -hmm. all about Maryland and Baltimore. And now that I'm in Huntington, West Virginia, I, I, when I talk about labor strikes, you I don't want just to be Chicago. Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I talk about Chicago, but we've got to talk about Blair Mountain. And I have never, I've probably taught 3,000 students now. And I've never had one come in to my office hours and say, I've got to know more about this labor strike in Chicago. But when I talk about the Battle of Blair Mountain, I can't know enough. Yeah. They, they surround me after class. So the, this, this ability to add content, to challenge my interpretation, um, I, I just, I loved that. So if you're teaching, if you're teaching in, uh, if, you're, if you're teaching in Seattle, you mm -hmm. can incorporate the Seattle general strike. If, if you're in, uh, if, if you're in Huntington, West Virginia, for example, the book I use uh, is actually, it's my book, but it was, uh, it was ad adapted by someone uh, who works for the Appalachian Studies Association, and he put in a lot of information about uh, women's suffrage in West Virginia, um, and he also embedded a video of a sit-in right here mm -hmm. in Huntington, West Virginia. Hmm. I, don't, I don't have to tell students that the civil rights movement happened beyond the Deep South in, in a certain time period. They can sit there and they can, in, in their digital book or in the, in, the, in the print version, it gives you a link to, to type in. You can, you can actually see images and the video of the sit-in happening about a mile away from where I teach. And there's this moment of the video where the students, you, you would think it would be when the students come staggering out because the, the owner of the white pantry, I couldn't make that up, the white pantry restaurant, <laughs> yeah. drops sulfur cakes to get the students to leave. And so you see students gasping for air. That's not the moment that, student, that gets students to pay attention. You think it would be, but they're so used to dogs biting students that this doesn't seem that different. It's when the camera pans out and you see the skyline of their hometown, I hear gasps on the back row because they realize, oh, it happened here too. And suddenly now the civil rights movement isn't just something that happened in the deep past for them because 1960 is a long, long time ago for someone oh, who's yeah. 18. Well, 9-11 is a long time ago. <laughs> this yeah. is true. And so, and, and, and so it's, it's the standard narrative. Um, I made the book. It's, it's, it's detailed. It's, um, I, I, I try to repeat things because I think students need that, mm -hmm. uh, repeat it in different ways. So, so you'll hear about tariffs three different times instead of just in one chapter. But you also see within the narrative of, of women's history, you have the potential to incorporate perhaps women's history, uh, the suffrage movement in your state. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love Chris Lettingham's version of my book because it does that. And there are other people who have adopted this and, and adapted it to fit their needs as well. So how much leeway does, does each individual professor get to, to customize? How, like how much give is there in the, in the whole thing? It's up to them. So they can the, add the as much majority, as they want? The vast majority just adopt it the way it is, which is mm -hmm. fine. Um, but what some people have done, maybe they teach a class that goes from World War I to World War II, and there's not a lot of textbooks 
for them if they want a general overview. Mm-hmm. They'll just chop off the other chapters, add a little bit more content. Now they've got a book for their class. Hmm. Um, so there's thematic. There's some that use it for thematic classes. There's some that are using it for uh, special chronological periods. Um, the vast majority, it's the survey, and they might add a few things of local history, but the vast majority adopt it as it is. Um, now, did it make you write the book in a different way, knowing that it, the way you wrote it wasn't necessarily the way it was going to be consumed? Right. I, I had to do it completely chronological. Yeah. Each chapter is chronological. If you notice, and, and this is weird, and I, I'd, I'd like to know the backstory of how this happens, but there are certain time periods in American history that are always a chronological chapter. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the 1820s, and there'll be four or five chapters that incorporates the 1820s in different thematic yeah. ways. And, and then, then there's a separate chapter on slavery. Yeah. I want to know how we got into that place where there's a separate chapter on slavery. Well, and, and, and all the books mostly do it the same way. That, you know, if you look at less so now, but especially about 10 or 15 years ago, the table of contents of you know, the major books used by, by both high schools and, and colleges were almost identical about you know, where they broke the chapters. and mm-hmm. uh, you know, They had more in common than they had, had that were different. Sure. And I, I mean, I, I say that I, I kind of know how we got into this place because, you know, the textbooks are designed really for quick perusal by adoption committees. Yeah. Um, faculty members, we don't want to read a textbook, and I understand why. So we, we thumb through these things. We see, we see the chapter headings we expect. We yeah. see the thematic. We, we, I don't think we should have separate sections for African-American history uh, for, for women's history, that should be sort of incorporated in there. But if we don't have those called out, we, people who are going to make the adoption decision, don't, they don't see it as quite yeah. as clearly. But yeah, I guess that's this, the big point, I guess, that, that James Lowen made in, uh, you know, lies my teacher told me is that the sort of market forces and the, um, adoption process shapes these books far more than scholarship or, uh, you know, real sort of critical reading of, of what's in the text sometimes. Right. I, I think that's true. Um, you know, so we get these books and they're beautiful. They really are. They're, they're, the pages are glossy. Uh, the, the, the bold terms and chapter subtitles we expect as we thumb th- th- through them. The images are beautiful. There's tons of special features. There's lots of shaded box. But there's usually very little text in a textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, on average, I've looked through a lot of the leading textbooks, about eight to ten sentences on a, on a very large page. And so what happens is that these things are so visually appealing and there's so many images and so much going on that reading turns into browsing very, very quickly. I, I would challenge any faculty member to try to sit down and read a textbook and just read the text and, and, and read it like you would want your students to read. Yeah. When, when a book looks like a magazine, we end up reading it like a magazine. Or when the book, it weighs, you know, some of the, especially the high school books, weigh, you know, 20 pounds or something. <laughs> you can't yeah. curl up with that book, in, you know, on your couch and read it. It's simply not a right. device designed for that. Uh, and so what's what's been the response to this sort of, 
you know, your book is in some ways fairly different than a lot of those. How, what, what's the response been from uh, you know, both uh, people, teachers who are using it and students? Well, I think the, the students, we, we sort of hook them from the beginning, um, or at least we did. Uh, tragically, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful story of failure in some mm-hmm. ways in that the book is no longer free. Yeah. Um, and they did that for market reasons, I assume? Yes. I, I, my perspective, of course, is different. I, I understand. Editors, publishers, we, we need good editors. We, we need plenty of money to pay them. They don't have tenure. Mm-hmm. If my book doesn't make a lot of money, it doesn't matter to me mm-hmm. because I have a tenure job. I mean, I, I have a tenure track job. This, so it's, it's a different – from my perspective, the free model worked um, because we had tens of thousands of people using it. And, yeah. and that, that, that matters. That works. Yeah, yeah. That matters to me. But when they have so many free users – that are taking up bandwidth and calling and, and you know, needing help, I, I think it was unsustainable from a business point of view. So it's no longer free. Um, the students, what I found, as long as it's affordable, they're absolutely, they, they don't expect it to be free. And, and what I also found was that the free model didn't encourage students to read. I, I, I think it's sort of like a gym. You know, if you have a gym at the university and it's free, you might not go there. But when you pay that membership fee, you sort of have skin in the game. Sure. So I think as long as, as we're in that 20 to $50 range, I, I think that's fair. I think students are happy. Um, the other big thing is it needs to be accessible in different ways. Um, you know, it's, it needs to be available in print always needs to be available in print and then it needs to be available uh, in a reliable digital format that doesn't disappear. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with digital rights management. Yeah. I mean the stuff where the book disappears after six months and <laughs> you know, self it's like, you know, a mission impossible and, and the thing sort of explodes after you read it. Uh, I, I just, I think one of the greatest tragedies of our time is that the greatest minds in, in industries are put to work inventing ways to manipulate markets uh, and, and it directs resources away from the creative process. Yeah. In, in this case, in hopes of, can you imagine getting a job at a publishing house, and you find that you spend most of your time trying to figure out how to make the last book you published disappear or so become totally usable? Yeah. I, yeah. Imagine, we would not allow. We we would be humiliated if the books we created for our peers did any of these things. Can you imagine yeah, going yeah. to a conference and seeing your colleagues and say, yeah, I bought your book. It disappeared. <laughs> yeah. Or you came out with a new version six months later. <laughs> I mean – And therefore you need to buy it again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you made my version unusable in some way. We, 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 it's a matter of respect yeah. I think. And, 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 and the textbook companies will claim that they need to do this for you know, financial reasons that these products are – very expensive to produce and you know they can't the re- you know the the secondary market is killing them right um, right and i don't know how honest they're being when they say that but uh, that that's at least the the line they all give us i think they're being honest now but they've they've told us this for so long mm-hmm. <laughs> that you know and it's you know there's, you know, the, the, I think they've gotten themselves, they have themselves to blame. Right? They, they, they give students these surveys, they give faculty members these surveys that are designed to get a positive response. 
Mm-hmm. Right. When you get that email that says we're going to give you fifty dollars, uh, a gift card, if if you'll come, they're not really concerned in what you, your opinions are. Right. They know what faculty want. They've been they've been doing this for yeah. for thirty years. They want they want to sell you a product. And so they create these surveys that are designed to elicit a positive response. Would you like more interactive features? Yes or no. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. We do this. Our universities do the same thing with our students. Would you like a climbing wall? Yes or no. They don't ask, would you like a climbing wall if it increases tuition? And so we, the, these, these textbook companies put out all this information, and now they're creating all these bells and whistles, and it's expensive. And so then they, they create all this stuff, and now, they, now they, they, have to, they feel like they have to make a sale in order to justify those expenses. Mm-hmm. When really all you needed to do was listen to faculty members. What do you want? I want a, I want a good book. I want a good book that's easily accessible, that that's affordable yeah. for students, and I want them to read it. Because students okay. are paying some astronomical amount on on textbooks, you know. Even if we teach at a place where the tuition's affordable, the right. Yeah, you know, we're doing better than like the chemist, the science people, because they spend right, right. three hundred and four hundred dollars for books. But uh, but it's but it's obscene when we do it because we're book people. Yeah. One of my one of the goals of college, I want. I want, their, I want them to be consumers of books when they leave. When they come to us at 18, this is the first time they've ever paid for a book, probably, as an adult consumer. I want them to do it again. So I want them to have a positive experience. I don't want them to feel like they were ripped off. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want them to buy a book that disappears yeah. or that they can't. You know what I mean? It's, 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 oh, I've noticed that students are less willing to buy books now than they were even 10 years ago, mm-hmm. I think, you know, and 20 years ago, even, you know, even more so that it used to be, you say, okay, this is the book for the course, go buy it. And they all buy it. I think right. increasingly I'm hearing students more so when I taught uh, in the States than here, but you know, the same, well, I'm can't afford to buy books or, you know, I I'm choosing which books I'm buying, right. you know, and, and which is a very, you know, interesting position for them to take. I'm not quite sure how to respond to that appropriately. Right. Uh, Right. But I mean, I think you have to ask yourself, would you buy this book? Yeah. And if the answer is not yes, then, you know, think about it from your student's perspective. Uh, the, the $120 first year studies textbook that's 80 pages and is nothing but cliches about the importance of, showing up on time, uh, we, we would never buy that. I mean, what, what's the fair market yeah. price for that book? <laughs> you, you couldn't give it away. Would you, well, I, I had this idea a couple of years ago about how to solve this textbook problem. It's probably a bad idea because no one's adopted it yet. Um, would advertising in books be okay as somebody who's written one of these books? I think the students would be okay with it. As an author, I wouldn't be. Um, because I think we broke the internet with advertising. I can't, I can't read about Ferguson mm-hmm. without realizing that this entire article was designed to distract me from Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And as an author, I don't want my book to act that way. Yeah. I just want it to be, I just want it to be affordable, mm-hmm. accessible. Yeah. And I don't, if a, if a student wants to sell my book, to another student via uh, directly or via a, a bookstore, that is absolutely fine with me because I'm looking at my collection of books 
And if it wasn't for used books, I could have never survived grad school. You and me both, yeah. Right. So, um, and again, the other thing that I think is, is we need to take this back. This, this, this is our industry. This is, this is book, this, we, we're, we're the book people. Yeah. We shouldn't have textbook companies having complete control over what we adopt. Mm-hmm. To the point where many of us have given up on using a book only to find that students really need a general overview, I think, now more than ever. Um, I, I'm, and the same I'm, thing, I'm I guess, is happening. on technology. I just I think we need to, to have faculty control it. Yeah. Well, I guess the same thing is happening with, with journals where the, these you know, multinational corporations have bought up all the, the journals and, and, and the publishing you know, facilities and... Uh, you know, the prices for, for journals has gone through the roof. and Right. But the editing is all done for free. The content's all produced for free. You know, why does the subscription, uh, institutional subscription of this journal cost, you know, $10,000? Right, uh, right. When it should be, you know, well, and just the, only just thing the cost we ever of the paper. Wanted, yeah, and the only thing we ever wanted when we wrote those articles were for people to read it. Yeah. But now so, they can't read it because you know it's too expensive for right. people other than those of us with a good uh, university library to to, to right. look at. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. it's a it's a tricky problem to figure out how to make all this work financially, which is totally beyond you know my understanding or expertise. But mm-hmm. there's got to be a way to do it that. Uh, right. You know, I mean, the, with 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 specialty books. I can understand there needing to be a, a large price tag, but with the general U.S. history textbook that's that's selling in large volume, yeah. Uh, if you have to charge one hundred eighty dollars to break even, you've done something terribly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> have you been following the the stories come out of Texas and other places about uh, the pressures being placed on textbooks there? Yes. Oh, yes. That's another. Another one of those reasons why the faculty control model yeah. is is essential, um, because you know even if someone adopts my book mm-hmm. and they eliminate all of the <laughs> I don't know what to say here all of the parts about American history that are compelling yeah uh, all, all of the conflict about class of, and yeah. gender and, and yeah so yeah, take mean, all that out it's half the right. length but uh, I, I assume what they're talking about is you know we don't want students to be rebels so uh, I guess we're going to have to take out the American Revolution as well. <laughs> um, be a very short book. Yeah. When, 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 when a faculty member takes content out, it shows that that section's been deleted. Okay. I want, more than anything, I want those teachers, those high school teachers, use that book, find a way to make it free. I don't, I don't, I don't care about the money. Use yeah. that book yeah. and delete the sections that they're going to make you delete just so students see this section on civil rights has been deleted. Yeah. Because I know something about students. And seeing that is probably better than that section I wrote. <laughs> they will not be satisfied. Let them know that that was taken out of yeah, their yeah. book. Uh, well, it's, you know, the one thing I noticed that was missing from that that Journal of American History Interchange did on on textbooks mm-hmm. is there wasn't really any discussion about high school textbooks, despite the fact that that's most of the market in some ways. It is, yeah. Uh, and those are the teachers that need it the most, right? Right. Uh, they have less preparation. Uh, they, and I say this as somebody who used to train people to be high school teachers. They've right. got a lot more demands on their time 
than we do. They have to go into class with far less sort of preparation, uh, and so they need the book that much more. And so good books are, are you know, critical to their success. I agree. And I, uh, you know, technology is one of those things that in the, right now it's, it, it seems like it's like we've been hijacked. But if we can get faculty control the way they're applying technology to books, I think there are such there's there's such potential. One is is the thing I've talked about where you can you can have that customization, you can embed primary sources, you can I'm in Texas, so you know, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the Alamo, but we're also gonna talk about um the Latino civil rights movement. Um and we're gonna talk about sit-ins that happened in Austin, Texas, because we're at the University of Texas or we're at Austin High School. You know, I've I've done this in every one of my classes. I, I can attest it reaches students where they live. The other thing that technology can do is is, is increase accountability. Um, you know, if student, what I hear all the time, if I could just get students to read the book, if I could just get students to read the book, well, uh, Sumo Publishing, it's S-O-O-M-O, mm-hmm. they, they um, licensed a copy of my book. I was a little skeptical at first, but I am so glad to say I was wrong to be skeptical. They, they've created something wonderful. They, they used uh, Bedford St. Martin's book uh, for the early half of, of U.S. history. And the American Promise, I guess. Yeah, that's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, this, for, the, for the second half. And then what they did is they created a book that is it, – it's digital and it asks questions of students as they read. Um, because what I've noticed is students will – you know, they'll stare at a book. <laughs> they'll try to read. But they've got so many things distracting them. And so it's been 10 minutes and they haven't really read much. This thing, after a few minutes, it asks them a simple question about what they've read. And what they find is normally they can't answer that question. But they make them answer that question, so they have to go back and read it again. Then they can read that question. And what they find is over time, students can start answering that question more and more. And then they don't need it as much because they're, they're constantly having their short attention spans jarred from them yeah. and saying, we, we need you to read this. Hmm. Um, so they've had 6,000 students use the, these two books. And what they're, what they, they're up to, uh, the average student now spends 22 hours reading those books. And I know that might not seem like much That's, at first. That's, you know, better than zero, which is I think we'll have some <laughs> students reading some of the books. But if we're honest with ourselves and we really think how many hours – do students spend with with just their textbook? Uh, there's no way it's 20. I was a good student as an undergrad. I don't think there was any class where I spent 22 hours reading the book. When you when you, if we're going to be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. uh, the other thing is that they because they can track all of this, they can make it to where you can't fall behind, or if you do, you 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 get they'll email you. It's like your mom, like, yeah. like hey, it's you been three days. You read the textbook in three days. Yeah, go back yeah, and read yeah, the textbook. You, I miss you. <laughs> Um, and then they're able to put all this together and then, and then they, of these 6,000 students, they, they can chart the amount of time, uh, students spend, those who spend more than 22 hours, for example, almost all of them have an A or B mm-hmm. and you can show that information to students, which creates that buy-in of C. I'm not just telling you to read this. I have actual evidence. Yes. Yes. If you, they, then they even have, they even contract students that started reading before the class started and I mean, they, they all get A's. <laughs> yeah. 
So I, I just have a question about career trajectory. You know, you and I, I think, are about the same age. Uh, and, you know, the the usual advice that, that, you know, we're given in grad school is to to, to go and, and publish original research first and then 20 years down the line after you've established yourself, then you can write your textbook and then you right. can do interesting other things that benefit the public. But until then, you write for, you know, an audience of five people. Right. <laughs> uh, and... It seems like you've sort of ignored that entire line of advice and you've done okay with it. I was wondering if you could sort of talk through the process of, of choosing to you know, write a textbook early in the career right. and build Clio pretty early. Well, I mean, I, I don't have any regrets and I love the stuff I'm doing. It always comes at a cost. I have two manuscripts that are near completion and have been for a few years. And you have small and children. so that uh... I have small children. <laughs> They're wonderful. And... You know, you've got to make choices. Mm -hmm. And I think the payoff for me, the long-term payoff for me, because I'm doing all of this, my two books might get more than five people to read them. Uh, the books are on African-American history in Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska. And one of the best books, I think, um, on Annabelle and black history was done in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm the only one that's read it. Harvard University Press is wonderful, um, and I fear that happening. Um, so maybe because I've done all of this, because I can link stuff to Clio, and because I've, I've done the textbooks, maybe that helps. You know, these these books get a, a few more readers. Um, but but boy, I I miss them. Yeah, I, I just do. Um, but then I I I I've, I've, I think I'm able to reach a lot more people. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's what a lot of people you know, want to do, you know, when they're you know in grad school. They want to do things that will be read by large numbers of people, and then, you know, right. usually their graduate advisor says, "Well, that's nice, but you can do that <laughs> right after you have tenure." Right, um, right. And I'm up for tenure this year. Oh, um, good luck. Thank you, thank you. I, I, you know, they they promoted me to associate professor, and I I haven't killed a child, so I think I'm, <laughs> I, I I should be okay. Um, I've got a supportive institution, and they see value in good teaching, but they also see value in these things that are reaching people. I think a lot of places are starting to do that. You know, that it used to be if you know you you didn't have your original monograph out, then they weren't. You know, right? It was right. that or that or nothing. And I think increasingly, lots of places are trying to recognize that there's, you know, writing right. a monograph that that you know is designed for specialists isn't the only way to, to do good history. Uh, right. But I've got to get those monographs out there. Uh, you know, I, I will always, I mean, these things, I, I, I put 80,000 miles on my car <laughs> traveling around. I mean, this was, yeah. I, 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 this, this is so well, only you had Cleo, to... You could have seen a lot more on that, those road trips. Yes, <laughs> I could have, I could have, I could have had a great time. I, I did have a great time. I could have, I could have, got a greater sense of, of, of the places where I, I, I was. But, I mean, so the books, these two books that I've, I've been working on my whole career, they're coming. I work on them in pockets of time between everything else. And that's sort of my time. And I enjoy it and value it even more because I'm working on this other stuff for the public. Um, but I see the payoff of, of these things. Um, I get, 
I used to get, I should say, when the book was free, I got lots of thank yous. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I was one of those students that, that really could have really could have benefited from that. Um, Clio is people who have never really cared much about history are, are using it and engaging with it and telling me stories about how much they love it. I was at a conference um, last weekend uh, sitting at a table. Of, of this is the conference people. in Memphis, right? You yeah, the conference in Memphis. And uh, somebody says, David, you got to talk about Clio. And, I, and, and, and someone said, wait a minute, was that you? I, 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 you know, that, that's not going to happen to you very often mm -hmm. um, in, in this world. So that, uh, you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun to create all of this and, and, and just to watch it grow and to see the value um, that, it, that it could offer people. You know, and maybe I get crushed by Google. I don't know. Well, but I, mean, the, I think the thing that, that things like Clio prove is, is, is even when people say, oh, I don't like history, I think lots of people do like history. They just didn't necessarily like the version they got in high school. Right. Uh, and, and, but that they're very interested in what happened in their community, and they're very happy interested in, uh, you know. Yeah. You go, I mean, if I, you go to National Monuments, they're always packed with people, which indicates that there are lots of people who are interested in history, even if... Uh, Absolutely, and there's something about you know you might you might live in Tacoma, Washington, and you've got a, 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 the greatest Civil War museum in the world. You still want to go to Gettysburg, yeah. And there's something about that sense of place, and when the sense of place meets our sense of the past. So I got to, and, and I built this thing, so I knew what it was going to do. I, I'm, I'm holding my phone in Louisville, uh, where there was a, a civil rights uh, protest, and I, I'm looking at images, and the building's still there. And so I'm looking at on my phone, I'm looking at images of protesters being arrested. And I'm standing at the same building, the building's the same. And I'm listening to an oral history. And I see in front of me, because it's an entertainment district now, uh, an interracial couple sitting and having dinner together. I, I almost You can't replicate that. I mean, any, you know, you can't replicate that in the classroom. I never thought, I mean, I was one of those people that, was, you know, smartphones are making us stupid and disconnected. They don't have to. Yeah. It's a powerful tool as long as you're not using it to watch cat videos all the time. <laughs> right. Right. Well, David, it was really great to having you on the show. And, uh, you know, when the books come out, we can have you back on. We can talk about that some. Oh, thank you so much. It was great. So that was my conversation with David Trowbridge. I've got links on the show page to Cleo and to his textbook. That's AmericanHistoryUntucked.blogspot.com. As always, you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Uh, until next time, this is David Silkenet.